take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus. We last left off in Exodus with the giving of the Ten Commandments to Moses. We're going to drop back just a bit this morning and consider the broader picture of what was taking place in their journey toward the Promised Land. And my message today is entitled, We Are On Our Way to the Promised Land. We're going to begin here in just a moment in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 31. So if you'll make your way there, we'll look at the last verse in chapter 14 and then make our way through parts of chapters 15 through 17. Life is a continual faith journey. We have to learn to trust God both physically and spiritually. We have to learn to lean in to the resource that God is and his presence and his power and his provision in our lives. Our human tendency is to trust in our own abilities and our own resources rather than trusting in God. Yet life presents us with situations which bring us to the end of our resources and our abilities And it's at that place where we hit the end that we really find our beginning. We hit the end of our own ability and our own strength. And we find out that there is someone who is far greater and far more powerful and far more capable than we are. And that's where our faith is really put into practice. God delivered his children, the nation of Israel, from bondage and oppression in Egypt He provided for them through the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of the enemy, the Pharaoh and his Egyptian army. And they were about to set out on this journey that would take them all the way to the brink of the promised land. Now, one thing we must note by way of context, the generation that ultimately failed to believe God died in the wilderness. And it was only the generation that was younger that had not disobeyed God in that manner that made it all the way to the promised land. Moses was permitted to look over and to see all that God was providing. May it not be the case in our lives that we know about the promised land, but we don't actually get to experience it in terms of heaven and the eternal home that God has prepared for all who have faith in him. Exodus chapter 14 and verse 31 says, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. Chapter 15 and verse 1, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. God's people were at a place of rejoicing. They recognized the spectacular victory that God had delivered for them. That victory that God delivered confirmed that they were, in fact, God's blessed people. They were his family. They were recipients of God's grace and mercy. It's the same with us. The victory that God gives us over sin and death and hell and the grave is a reminder to us that it's God's grace, it's God's mercy that rescues us and also makes our lives 
worthwhile. But what the Israelites were reminded of is that with freedom comes responsibility. And with our freedom from sin and our deliverance to salvation, God has given us the responsibility as well. And that responsibility is to honor God, is to bring glory to his name, is to live in close communion with him, it's to bless him with all of the things that he entrusts to us. Now, the desert of Shur was a barren region stretching eastward from Egypt to the Sinai Peninsula. The region that they entered into is mentioned several times in the narrative passages in the book of Genesis, and it is later associated with the record of Saul and David's victories over the Amalekites. The Israelites probably made their journey through the center part of that desert, and they were on their way to the promised land. Between the Red Sea and the Promised Land was the wilderness. That's important to note because that represented the challenge of their lives and collectively their experience as God's people and how they responded to God and whether or not they exercised faith in God and whether or not they depended on the provision of God in the wilderness experience would demonstrate who and what they were trusting in. And we are on our way to the promised land that the Bible calls heaven. Between now and eternity lies what we call life. It's this common human experience that we all are in, faced with challenges, faced with obstacles. And more specifically for followers of Jesus, between salvation and glorification, Between the time we are rescued from our sins and the time that we are with God in heaven through faith in Jesus Christ, that's the life that we are to live. That's our journey experience as we make our way to eternity with God. And God calls on us in light of this freedom that he has given us to be responsible, to be faithful with what he's given us. So let's consider the wilderness journey, both in terms of what God did for and in and through his people there, but let's also consider the wilderness journey as a symbol of our lives, of what takes place from the moment that we meet God here until the moment that we are with God forever. And there's several ideas I want to show you as we move through these passages of scripture together. And the first idea is this. On our way to the promised land, we learn about who we are. On our way to the promised land, we learn about who we are. Deliverance for the people would soon turn to disappointment. Oh, how quickly we forget what God has done. Oh, how quickly we forget the experience of seeing God move. Oh, how quickly we forget how God graciously provides for us. That's so easy for us. We have short memories just like they had a short memory. And then their disappointment turned into complaining and things digressed from there. But even still, God was faithful. Look at Exodus 15 over in verse 22. Beginning in verse 22, the Bible says, Then Moses led Israel on from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur. They journeyed for three days in the wilderness without finding water. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. 
that is why it was named Mara. The people grumbled to Moses, what are we going to drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he threw it into the water, the water became drinkable. The Lord made a statute, an ordinance for them at Mara, and he tested them there. And he said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illnesses on you that I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. And then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 date palms, and they camped there by the water. Three days after the miracle at the Red Sea, and they've already forgotten the power of God. Just a short time from seeing the power of God miraculously open the waters of the sea and to permit them to walk through on dry ground. And then when they pass through for the enemy to come in behind them and the water to come crashing down, wiping out the enemy and the Pharaoh who had come after them. And now here they are, already having forgotten that, complaining about their circumstance. Friends, how quickly we can forget what God has done in our lives. And it is easy for us to sit in judgment on these people and to think, how could they have been so short-sighted? How could they have forgotten so easily? How could they have been so ungrateful for what God had done? And yet we find ourselves in the same circumstance and God miraculously delivering us from sin and granting us the gift of salvation and giving us all of the blessings that belong to Jesus as our inheritance. And the first sign of trouble, we begin to complain because we're disappointed about what we're up against. They journeyed for these three days without finding water, and undoubtedly they were becoming desperate. They came to this place but couldn't drink because the water was bitter. The Bible says that's the reason it was named that. And they began to ask, what are we going to drink? And yet the Lord performs another miracle and the water becomes drinkable. This journey of life tests our faith. And this journey of life reveals who we are before a holy God who sees all things. And God either permits things to come into our lives which reveal who we are, or he directly causes things to come into our lives that reveal who we are. Either way, God is looking and he's seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2 refers to a later and longer wilderness experience in the backdrop of all of this, but it provides insight into how God works in the lives of his people. And scripture says, remember that the Lord your God led you on the entire journey for these 40 years in the wilderness Listen, so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart and whether or not you would keep his commands. What does God do in this journey that we're on? Well, he brings these things to bear on us so that he might humble us. The mention of humility is not by accident because it's pride in the human heart that led to sin in the first place. 
It, it was pride in the heart of Lucifer when he was in heaven and he was experiencing the glory of God, but he was not satisfied. He was not content with his position. He wanted the position that belonged only to God. And because of pride, he was cast out of heaven. And then he entered into the garden as that serpent. And he convinced Eve that she was missing out on something. And in her own pride and lack of humility, she disobeyed God. Adam followed and sin entered into the world. You see, the Lord humbles us for a reason. He humbles us because in our flesh, we are prideful people. Even when we are in our redeemed condition, it is easy for us to fall back into pride. It's easy for us to fall back into self-sufficiency. It's easy for us to forget that it was all about God to begin with. And God humbles us. And not only does he humble us, but according to Deuteronomy 8 and verse 2, he tests us so that he will know what is in our hearts. You see, friend, I don't know what's in your heart, but God does. You don't know what's in my heart, but God does because he sees all things. And he's concerned not only with our outward activity. He's concerned not only with our public expression of worship to him and our service to him, but God is concerned with what's going on down in our soul. He's concerned with where our affections are. He's concerned with where our aspirations lie. He's concerned where our real devotion is. And I think we are so tempted to fall into that trap of busyness and activity and religious duty and these exercises that look spiritual, but in fact, our hearts can be far from God in those things. So God continually humbles us so that we would be more like him. And he tests us to know what's in our heart. But then in the midst of the trials, he's looking to see if we will keep his commands. It's easy when you're on the mountaintop. It's easy when the blessings are flowing your way. It's easy when the times are good. It's easy when your health is strong. It's easy when... There's no immediate crisis in your life to say, oh, yes, the Lord is good. Oh, yes, I exalt his name. But what you find out about yourself to the real core of who you are is when you find yourself in the valley and things are not good and perhaps your health is not strong and times are not happy and you're suffering loss and you're coming up against challenges, that's when you find out where your real belief lies. And that's where you find out whether or not you're going to obey God in the moment of difficulty. It is no problem at all to obey God in the moment of ease. But when you get in the moment of difficulty, that shows where your allegiance lies. And that's what God was seeking to determine among these people. They grumbled to Moses, but yet God reminds them that blessing will follow obedience And notice what he does in verse 27. He leads them into even greater provision where there's springs of water and there are these date palms and what they need. And even though they were not where they needed to be, God was still faithful. He still showed his love for them. And you understand right now that even if you're in a moment of want, Even if you're stressed out about what's coming next, 
Even if you don't have an answer, the word for you today is trust in God. And if you will trust in God, God might just see you through to the other side and you might get to a place where the springs are freely flowing with blessings. But you got to keep trusting him. And you got to keep obeying him in the moment. What are you going through? What does the Lord find when he looks in your heart? What does the Lord see when he evaluates your life? On our way to the promised land, we learn about who we are. The second idea is this. On our way to the promised land, we learn about who God is. We're not sure how long the people camped at Elam, but when they left, they traveled south toward Mount Sinai, arriving in the wilderness exactly one month after they left Egypt. And we begin reading in Exodus chapter 16 and verse 1, the entire Israelite community departed from Elam and came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had left the land of Egypt. Verse 2, the entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt and we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Food supplies began to diminish and the people again started to grumble. They blamed their leaders, Aaron and Moses. They were wishing they were back under their old circumstances in Egypt. Sometimes in our journey with God, when we encounter difficulty or challenge, we are tempted to think that it would be better if we were not living this life of faith and if our lives were just like everyone else's. When we see the world and their perceived abundance and their perceived happiness and their perceived freedom, We can look at them and think, well, why in the world am I going through all this trouble as a Christian? Is it even worth it to serve God? Now, none of us would vocalize that generally speaking, but we would internalize it in our hearts. And there are very few of us who somewhere along the way in our journey have not had some of those very thoughts. But you see what that is, is that is a deception from the devil who is drawing you in to make you think that you are missing out on something. He is causing you to forget all that God has done for you. And if you get right up to the brink, you recognize the problem, and then you turn back to your old ways, you'll miss the blessing of what God wants to do in your life in the next step. Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, This evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the Lord's glory because he has heard your complaints about him. For who are we that you complain against us? Moses continued, the Lord will give you meat to eat this evening, all the bread you want in the morning, for he has heard the complaints that you are raising against him. Who are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. God heard their plea. 
Understand that even if we're feeling the pressure and even if we feel like we don't know what the answer is and even if we feel like we don't know when the provision is coming next and we share our hearts with God and we're honest with God, God sees us and he is still gracious toward us and he still provides. We all have experiences in our lives where we've been feeling those complaining and grumbling feelings in our hearts. And it's like, Lord, what are you going to do next? I need help. I need an answer. And then God provides and he shows himself faithful. But if you don't keep believing and you don't keep trusting, you're not going to experience God's faithfulness in your time of need. So here was God. He provided bread from heaven, manna. The manna appeared in flakes or small ground grains. And according to Numbers chapter 11, it was like coriander seed. It it was a blessing of sweetness from God. And they were commanded to collect only what they needed for that day and nothing more. And then they were to rest on the Sabbath having collected enough to get them through that day of worship and honoring God. Here's what we must never forget. God always provides for us. And God is patient with us in our impatience. And God supplies for what we need, even if we don't know what we need. And then we pick up reading again in verse 10. As Aaron was speaking to the entire Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness. And there in a cloud, the Lord's glory appeared. Now I could just skip past verse 10 here because we've read passages like this before. We've been there and we've done that. We, we've heard about the glory of God, but I want you to understand what was taking place here. In the midst of the provision, the ultimate point was not the provision. In the midst of the provision, the ultimate point was the glory of God. And God made his manifest presence known among his people so that they could experience his glory. Yes, see, I think part of our problem in this life is that we've forgotten about the glory of God and we've gotten so focused in on the moment and what our struggles are and what our burdens are and what our concerns are that we've lost sight of the fact that all of life is about the glory of God. And in that, we miss out on the real blessing of the journey because when God saves you, He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in you and for your life to be lived out through his power and day by day, moment by moment, life with God is experienced through his glory. That's the point of your life. It's the point of my life. Verse 11, the Lord spoke to Moses. I've heard the complaints of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you'll eat bread until you're full. Then you will know that I'm the Lord your God. So at evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew all around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, there were fine flakes on the desert surface, as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they asked one another, what is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses told them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather as much of it as each person needs to eat. You may take two quarts per individual according to the number of people each of you has in his tent. As I've said in our walk through the great stories from God's word in the Old Testament, some would take a 
side journey here and try to demonstrate to you that in fact it was possible in some way or it was some type of phenomenon that could be explained away that God could provide in such a way for this many people. And I'm going to tell you how God provided in this way for this many people. He's God. And if he can speak creation into being, it is no problem at all for him to provide for these people. And if he can provide for these people through his power, he can provide for us as well. So what we need is not a great faith, but we need faith in a great God. And if our faith is in a great God, nothing will seem impossible to him because he is able to do all things that are consistent with his character and they're for his glory. And that's what he did among these people. And God provides for our needs and he shows us that he is sufficient on our journey to the promised land. Did not Jesus instruct his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Are we day-to-day dependent on God like that? Or is it only in a moment of crisis that we reach out to him? Verse 17, so the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot, some a little. When they measured it by quartz, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus, and the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank. Therefore, Moses was angry with them. They gathered it every morning. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much food, four quarts apiece. And all the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He told them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a day of complete rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil and set aside everything left over to be kept until morning. So they set it aside until morning as Moses commanded and it didn't stink or have maggots in it. That's a good thing. Verse 25. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. Today you won't find any in the field. For six days you will gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but did not find any. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? Understand that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he will give you two days worth of bread. Each of you stay where you are. No one is to leave his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. The house of Israel named the substance manna. It resembled coriander seed, was white, and tasted like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Two quarts of it are be preserved throughout your generation so that they may see the bread I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses told Aaron, take a container and put two quarts of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be preserved throughout your generations. And as the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron placed it before the testimony to be preserved And the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they reached the border of the land of Canaan. They used a measure called an omer, which held two quarts. The people journeyed on from there to a place called Rephidim, northwest of Sinai. On our way to the promised land, we learn about ourselves On the way to the promised land, we learn about who God is. And then finally, on our way to the promised land, we experience God's power in the battles of life. On the way to the promised land, we experience God's power in the battles of life. Roaming the deserts of northern Sinai, 
were a vicious people. They were called the Amalekites. They were descendants of Esau's grandson and were so named, according to Genesis chapter 36. They were undoubtedly trying to protect their own territory, but they were also a little bit fearful of this mass of people who were coming toward them, as you might imagine. And I want you to notice what happens beginning in verse 8 of chapter 17. At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up on the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. And when Moses' hands grew heavy, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other side, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. And the Lord then said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne, and the Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. To meet the crisis, Moses had Joshua come, and he commands him to gather the armies and to attack the enemy. This is the first mention of Joshua, who is a looming, significant figure in the Old Testament. He's probably about 45 years old at this point. Uh, His name was Hosea, but it was later changed to Jehoshua, Numbers chapter 13, the former name meaning Savior, the latter name meaning God is salvation. And for 40 years, he would act as the military leader of Israel and also as Moses' personal aide. And he was a faithful man. Note here, he organized untrained and unskilled soldiers from Israel, and he went to battle. He was a man of military genius, but do not miss the point here. It was not his military genius that ultimately brought victory for the Israelites. It was the power of God. And the power of God was accessed through the prayers of God's servant, Moses. So note the difference here in how we often operate even in the church. We depend on our resources, and we depend on our strength, and we depend on our personnel, and we depend on our ingenuity, and we depend on our organizational skills. And that's not what they depend on ultimately at all. They depended on the power of God, and the power of God was accessed through the prayers of God's people. Joshua did what Moses told him to do, and they fought against Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and as long as Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. He puts down his hand, and Amalek prevailed. But they supported him until the sun went down, and Joshua and the army of Israel prevailed. Let me just ask you this question. In our journey that we purport to be on, are we known for our prayer that expresses our faith in God? Are we known for our creativity or our ability or our busyness or our money or our strength? 
if we are no, known for the latter, we will always come up short. But if we are known for the former, God's power is endless. His supply is without end. And that says so much to us. We've already seen the glory of God in this passage. And how it's so easy for us to forget what God has done and what God has brought us out of and what God is delivering us to. And we forget that life with God is about experiencing Him and His presence and His glory moment by moment and day by day. And friend, if your concept of what Christianity is is anything different than that, then you've missed the point. And if as a church, we are not continually bringing you into the presence of God and encountering him through his word and experiencing the power and the anointing of his Holy Spirit in your life. And if you're not crying out in worship on a daily basis, and if you're not coming with anticipation to come together with the people of God in worship, you have missed the point. And in far too many churches, there is a fine production that goes on week in and week out, but the power of God is absent. And it cannot be. We cannot operate in that manner. We cannot be satisfied with status quo. We cannot be satisfied with life in the flesh. We must approach God and worship Him in spirit and in truth for His glory and in prayer. I've said it many times and I'll continue to say it. The measure of a church spiritually, the temperature of a church spiritually is not measured by a great crowd that comes for a particular event that might be exciting and might be compelling. The measure of a church, the spiritual temperature of a church is the prayer life of said, that said church. That's the measure. If you want to find out how deeply spiritual people are, if you want to find out how much people hunger for God, if you want to find out how much people long for the glory of God, call a prayer meeting. And you'll find out where people are spiritually, quickly. And I say that to you to challenge you about where we are as a church. Are, are we hungering for the glory of God? Are we passionately Seeking God, are we in prayer continually and desiring to obey the word of God? If we're not, we need to refocus. And you understand that we have a spiritual enemy. Jesus said in the gospel of John that the devil is a liar and a murderer and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy you if he can. And if he can wrap you up in busyness and he can wrap you up in religious exercise and he can mire you down in the busyness of your own life and keep you from communing with God and experiencing the glory of God, he has the victory over you in this life. And that's not the life God is calling you to because he's already delivered you from something. But in this journey, he is delivering you toward something. And whatever your present battle is, if you will depend on the power of God, you will experience the victory. And the devil coordinates significant opposition against the people of God. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And then John wrote this in 1 John 4 and verse 4. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, the enemies, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater. 
He is better. He is more powerful. And no matter what our temptation or our testing is, God has provided us the way of deliverance and the way of escape. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common demand. But God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but he will with the temptation also provide for you the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. God will give you what you need. God will give you the victory if you'll trust him. So what do we need? We need faith to overcome. We need prayer to overcome. And we need the people of God to overcome. Faith, prayer, and community. And I say this to you as I come toward the close of this message. From the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us keeping our eyes on Jesus. Oh, it's easy to look down. It's easy to look back. It's easy to look from side to side. But the Bible says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us and let us keep our eyes on Jesus because the victory is in him. And I'll be honest with you, this life is not a straight line from here to there. You've been a Christian any time at all. You know that it's filled with twists and turns and ups and downs and mountains and valleys and victories and defeats and joys and disappointments and gain and loss and everything in between. In her article, Soaring Journeys, a lady by the name of Jill Caratini related what happened on March the 1st of 1999. Two men by the name of Bertrand Picard and Brian Jones stepped into the gondola of a hot air balloon and lifted off from a small Swiss Alpine village. 19 days, 21 hours, and 55 minutes later, traveling 28,431 miles, they landed in the Egyptian desert. Their journey, which was successful, marked the first nonstop flight around the world in a balloon, a hot air balloon, earning them the distinction of a world record, a book deal, and a million dollars from the sponsoring corporation. Their victory photograph now rests in the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, beside the Breitling Orbiter 3. That's important that it was the third one. Like most any significant life journey, including our spiritual journey, the journey of the Breitling Orbiter 3 did not take an easy path. As the name suggests, the Breitling Orbiter 3 was built upon two previous failed attempts In fact, the journey that would end with a world record actually had three hopeful starting points and two frustrated finishes. The original Breitling Orbiter launched in January of 1997, and only a few hours after takeoff, the balloon was forced to land when the crew was overcome by kerosene fumes from a leaking valve. One year later, the Breitling Orbiter 2 stayed in the air nine days longer than its counterpart, but the flight was cut short when China refused to give them passage through their air space. Yet both of these setbacks contributed to a strategy that would allow them to accomplish their stated mission. I'm looking forward ultimately to the end of this journey. I'm looking forward to someday when we're going to be in the presence of the Lord and all that we've known previously by faith, we will experience by sight 
And I love the one verse of the song that we sang earlier this morning, because he lives. And then one day we'll cross that river and we'll fight life's final war with pain. And as death gives way to victory, we'll see the lights of glory and we'll know he reigns. We're going to know it because we're going to be with him. And friend, if we're longing to be with God forever and ever, wouldn't now be a good time to start to get to know him? Wouldn't now be a good time to serve him? Wouldn't now be a good time to say, God, I will not take another step of this journey without your power and without your presence and without your provision because I can't do it on my own. Life by faith. It's the only way to live. Let's bow our heads together just for a moment. Where are you at in your life's journey? If you've not come to the starting line, that starting line is repentance and faith in Jesus, the Son of God who lived and died and now lives again, having paid the penalty for your sin, having been raised from the dead and now seated at the right hand of God. And he invites you to come to a relationship with your maker. Please don't leave this place today without trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord if you don't know him. And then for many of us, we're, we're on this journey. Some of us are struggling. We need a hand up and a, a hand to bring us along and in a word of encouragement. May we be the people of God, the family of God that bears one another's burdens along the way. And encourages each other that even though there's twists and turns and ups and downs and victories and defeats, we help each other to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the finish line. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace in our lives. We're so undeserving, but we are so grateful. And I pray that our lives will be a continual expression of praise, a continual experience of your glory, God, in a continual faithfulness and obedience to your call on our lives. So we give this time of invitation and conclusion over to you, Lord. Work in it as you see fit. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.